According to the last century, the 20th century's dominant narrative of the history of Trinitarian theology, St. Thomas Aquinas is the main villain in the long history of Christian thought about the Trinity. In many versions of this standard narrative, St. Thomas competes with St. Augustine for this dubious honor. But even if he is only the second worst Trinitarian theologian of all time, St. Thomas is the clear paradigm according to this narrative. He is the clear paradigm of Western scholastic error on the Trinity. He embodies, according to this story, all the bad features of the scholastic attempt to systematize Augustine's Trinitarian theology, which was already, according to this way of understanding things, Augustine's already misguided Trinitarian theology was then systematized by St. Thomas. Now, theologians who tell this story, who think of the history of Trinitarian thought in this way, ignore the remarkable richness of medieval Trinitarian thought from, say, Anselm, St. Anselm in the 12th century uh, to William of Ockham and others in the 14th century. To be more blunt about it, theologians who tell this story do so in more or less total ignorance of the complex and sophisticated tradition of reflection in which St. Thomas is one voice among many. Situating Aquinas in this tradition of reflection greatly helps us to understand his accomplishment, but I will not try to do that today. That is for another time. St. Thomas himself is the most influential theologian of the medieval scholastic tradition, and I will focus on him in relation to contemporary Catholic theology rather than in his own historical context. Now, St. Thomas's deepest and most destructive mistake, according to this narrative or story about the development of Trinitarian theology, is to have completed the process which began with Augustine of turning the doctrine of the Trinity from the heart of the mystery of salvation, which is what it should be, into an abstract and isolated technical puzzle, which has no relevance to any other theological topic or to the daily lives of Christians. In the famous phrase of Karl Rahner, very important 20th century Catholic theologian, in Rahner's famous phrase, it was Aquinas who made of Christians mere monotheists rather than those whose belief in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, shapes all of their worship, life, and thought. Rahner himself was cautious about laying this charge directly at the door of Aquinas, but his disciples, of whom there have been many, have not been so cautious. So I will continue with the explanation of this narrative of Trinitarian theology. So this is not the position of Thomas, but the position that opposes the view. Thomas consigns the Trinity to irrelevance according to this narrative, because he makes other mistakes of a somewhat more technical kind. And there are three mistakes, according to this narrative, that Thomas and Augustine before him make when it comes to the theology of the Trinity. He makes three errors in particular, 
And these are closely related in this understanding of St. Thomas. First, the first mistake of St. Thomas, according to this modern narrative, is that he starts, and that's the crucial term, he starts with the one God, rather than as even Peter Lombard in the 12th century had known to do with the Trinity of person. What this narrative, or Rahner in particular, is referring to is that in the Summa Theologia of St. Thomas, you have first a whole series of questions on the one God, or to be more precise, on the divine essence. And only after the series of questions on the divine essence, do you have a series of questions on the Trinity, on the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. According to Rahner and many others, this is a, this is a serious mistake. And, uh, it, it causes, they believe it causes, um, this eclipse of the Trinity, uh, for Christian life and thought. The second mistake, according to this view, is that Aquinas and Augustine before him is an essentialist. He holds to an essentialism about the Trinity. What that means is that having started with the essence, having started with the undifferentiated divine essence, St. Thomas can never really get to the divine person. He is stuck only with the essence and never reaches the person's father, son, and spirit in their fundamental distinction from one another. And especially in the personal interaction that we see in the economy of salvation, disappear entirely according to this criticism. They are swallowed up by the one divine essence. At best, they are reduced to what is often called mere relations within the one divine essence. And they lose as a result of this their character as genuine person. They can be distinguished according to this criticism only by an abstruse geometry of origination and relation, a kind of highly abstract conceptual geometry, which leads only an isolated divine triad of three subsistent relations, in which we cannot possibly have, according to Rahner and others, any existential interest, any interest that relates to our salvation and our own relationship with God. The third criticism, the third error that is attributed to St. Thomas is that he follows what is often called the Western or the Latin or the Augustinian. These are all different labels for the same thing. St. Thomas follows the Western, Latin, or Augustinian Trinitarian tradition, and he should have followed instead the Eastern or Greek or Cappadocian tradition. If Thomas had done that, according to this criticism, he would have known to start with the Trinity of Persons, the first mistake he makes, rather than with the one God or an abstract divine essence, and thereby he would have found his way to a genuine Trinitarian personalism rather than being bound to his Augustinian essentially. So that is the criticism. Now, over the last 25 years or more, historians of ancient and medieval Christian thought have thoroughly discredited this modern narrative about the content and development of Trinitarian theology. St. Thomas has received a great deal of attention in this ongoing historical reconsideration of the Christian Trinitarian tradition. 
Father Gilles Emery of Fribourg and others have constructed a detailed and precise historical account of St. Thomas's teaching on the Trinity against its patristic and medieval background. In the process, Father Emery and others have shown that neither the basic thrust of the standard 20th century narrative, nor any of its more technical elements, has merit or is correct as a reading of St. Thomas. I will quote Father Emery, only a profound misunderstanding could have led Karl Rahner to associate the name of St. Thomas with the views that he criticizes. Only deep misunderstanding, in other words, could have led not only Rahner, but generations of theologians to dismiss Aquinas on the Trinity as a Latin essentialist who does not know where to start his Trinitarian theology. The results of this historical labor are by now familiar and can be summarized in response to each of the three criticisms or errors that are attributed to Thomas by the modern narrative. And that is what I will do next. So the first criticism is that St. Thomas starts his theology in the wrong place with the divine essence. And the response of Father Emery and many others is that even to suggest that it really matters a lot where a Trinitarian theology starts is itself a mistake. Writing Trinitarian theology is, after all, not like writing a novel. It is a quest for the rational understanding of the faith. It is not an effort to tell a good story. Trinitarian theology aims at what the Catholic tradition has called the intellectus fidei, the understanding of the faith given to us by God. It is not an effort to get from the beginning to the end in the most imaginative way possible. So it does not matter where one starts. In fact, Trinitarian theology really has no single beginning and end. The understanding of the faith that the whole theology of the Trinity aims at is attained to the extent that the primary teachings of the faith about the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are developed in a way that maintains basic intellectual values like consistency, comprehensiveness, simplicity, and explanatory power. This is no easy task when it comes to understanding the church's faith in the Trinity, but surely this quest for the understanding of the faith can be started in any number of ways. In any case, it makes little sense to charge Aquinas with starting in the wrong place, since he actually starts in both places. He starts with the essence and he starts with the person. In book one of his scriptum on the sentences, his first great work of theology, when he was in the University of Paris in the 1250s, in book one of his scriptum on the sentences, St. Thomas follows Peter Lombard's order of presentation, and he offers a detailed account of the Trinity of persons first, long before he considers the attributes of the divine nature at the end of book one. In the Summa Theologiae, St. Thomas reverses this order, and he takes the step what, that Rahner objects to so strongly of treating the divine essence and its attributes first. But the actual content of the Trinitarian theology, with some interesting technical points aside that we can leave aside for another time, 
the actual content of the Trinitarian theology in both works, although they start in opposite places, the actual content is largely the same. Surely it would be odd to say that essentially the same Trinitarian theology succeeds in one work and is incoherent in another work simply because they are presented in two different orders or in two different places. Second, criticism that we're replying to is that St. Thomas is an essentialist who does not really make a relevant distinction between the persons or among the persons of the Trinity. And Father Emery and others have shown that St. Thomas cannot be a Trinitarian essentialist at all. But this is a profound misunderstanding because St. Thomas does not think the Trinity of persons can either be derived from the divine essence in our thought or produced by the divine essence in reality. That is, St. Thomas is neither an epistemic nor an ontological essentialist about the Trinity. We cannot, again, derive the Trinity from our idea of the divine essence, and God as essence does not generate person. Divine essence, for Thomas, can be known by natural reason. The Trinity of persons can be known only by revelation and faith. More precisely for St. Thomas, nothing about the divine essence, whether known by faith or by reason, including intellect and will as properties belonging to the essence, allow us to infer that there are three distinct persons in God. That there are personal productions and so personal distinctions in God is a primitive datum, a fundamental datum or given of Catholic faith. It is what we could call an epistemological prime number, which cannot be derived from any item of knowledge about the divine essence. And I sent to Carl an English text of question 32, article one, of the first part of the Summa Theologiae, in which Thomas makes the argument that I have just briefly summarized uh, in full detail. So St. Thomas is not an essentialist in terms of our thought about the Trinity, but he is also not an essentialist because he denies that in God, in the divine reality itself, the essence produces anything at all. The divine essence for St. Thomas does not produce a divine person, let alone all three divine persons. In fact, in the year 1215, the Fourth Lateran Council, the most important of the ecumenical councils of the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, taught as basic to the faith that the divine essence or nature neither generates nor is generated, neither produces nor is produced. It is the Father, the person, who generates. It is the Son, the person, who is generated. The Father and the Son actively produce or spirate the Holy Spirit, the person, while the Holy Spirit proceeds from or is spirated by the persons, the Father and the Son. These acts of generation and procession, as they are called in the tradition of Trinitarian theology, including St. Thomas, these are personal acts. They are not acts of the divine essence. And it is only in virtue of these personal acts, one by the Father and the other by the Father and the Son, it is only by virtue of these personal acts that we have a distinction of persons in God. 
the essence itself is neither the agent nor the patient of personal action in God. All scholastic theology, not simply St. Thomas, is aware of this teaching and follows it, very much including, of course, St. Thomas himself. For scholastic theology, after the year 1215 and the Fourth Lateran Council, the question was never whether essentialism is wrong. It was clear that essentialism is wrong in the Middle Ages. And the question was, the interesting question to the scholastic theologians like St. Thomas is, what sort of argument most effectively shows that it is wrong? And on this point, there was, in fact, an interesting variety of views. Third criticism was that St. Thomas follows the Latin or Western approach, and he should have followed the Greek approach. But again, historical research over the last generation or two has shown that St. Thomas knew and used the Greek fathers more extensively than any Latin theologian of his time, and probably more than any Western theologian before the 17th century. On the Trinity, St. Thomas draws especially from St. John of Damascus, whose book, The Orthodox Faith, had been translated into Latin in the earlier 13th century. Conversely, St. Thomas was a respectful, but also sometimes a critical interpreter of Augustine on the Trinity. It is then a mistake, Father Emery and others have shown, to believe that all St. Thomas does is follow Augustine. He is, in fact, much more complex, and his historical resources are much richer than that. In fact, the scholastic theologians, including St. Thomas, in their extensive debates about what to make of Augustine and the rest of the patristic inheritance known to them, considered an enormous variety of views on virtually every Trinitarian question, embracing all the alternatives on the table during the patristic age, both East and West, and many other alternative views besides. So the very idea that there are discrete and opposed Greek and Latin Trinitarian traditions is itself difficult to sustain. So I have finished the first half of my lecture which is concerned with a very widespread modern criticism of St. Thomas on the Trinity and of the whole tradition that St. Thomas represents and explained how these criticisms are met and responded to by recent historical work on St. Thomas. The second half of the lecture concerns the theology of the Trinity itself, especially as it has been treated in recent Catholic theology and tries to say, I will try to say a few things about how the insights into St. Thomas that we have been given by a lot of recent research that I have just briefly summarized can help us think about the Trinity. So the second half. Despite widespread agreement among scholars of St. Thomas and medievalists about these basic points of Thomas's Trinitarian teaching, versions of the earlier narrative and Thomas's place in it remain widespread in Catholic dogmatic or systematic theology. Sometimes contemporary Catholic theologians talking about the Trinity seemed simply unaware that the historical narrative taken for granted by Rahner and other theologians of the 20th century has been dismantled, has been shown to be mostly incorrect. Other theologians are aware of this and accept it, yet they proceed as though there were no theological lessons 
to be learned from a renewed appreciation of what St. Thomas actually taught. Thomas's Trinitarian teaching, they assume, can be left to history and has no significant bearing on the way we think about the Trinity today, at least not in a way that should lead us to change our minds about our own central Trinitarian claims in contemporary Catholic theology. A renewal of Trinitarian theology inspired by St. Thomas will therefore have to do more than set the historical record straight about his teaching for those who are willing to listen. It will have to join the fray, join the battle of contemporary Trinitarian theology and show that a broadly Thomistic way of thinking about the Trinity copes with the manifold issues which dominate contemporary Trinitarian theology more sensibly and more effectively than current Trinitarian theology itself is able to do. Thomistic theology needs, in other words, to go on the offensive and not simply defend St. Thomas's Trinitarian teaching against misrepresentation, important as that is. To borrow a phrase from Father Thomas Joseph White, whom you have heard um, recently, I know, what we need to do is offer medieval answers to modern questions and show that these are better than the answers that contemporary theology usually gives. One of the basic concerns of contemporary Trinitarian theology is that the Trinity be relevant in all areas of Christian faith and theology, that the Trinity make a difference to all areas of Christian faith and theology, and that it not be relegated, the teaching about the Trinity, not be relegated to what Rahner calls splendid isolation, by which in fact he means miserable and destructive isolation. In fact, post-conciliar, post-Vatican II Catholic theology often joins Protestant theology, especially under the influence of the Protestant theologian Karl Barth, in seeking the closest possible bond between the Trinity and the cross. Of all the mysteries of the faith with which the Trinity must be related, it is above all the cross that in contemporary theology is emphasized. With this, St. Thomas clearly agrees, both in general and in particular, that is that the Trinity should be relevant to all Christian faith and life, and in particular that it's relevant to our understanding of the cross. This is, should not be surprising to us that Thomas thinks the Trinity is relevant. Since he is not a Latin essentialist who starts in the wrong place, he can be expected to repudiate the underlying error to which such a view is supposedly prone. In a well-known passage of his Summa Theologia, a passage I gave you in English uh, from question 32, an objector, one of the objections that Thomas notes, perhaps a medieval Rahner, as it were, in the back row at Viterbo or Santa Sabina, an objector insists that the knowledge of the Trinity cannot be irrelevant. Correct, St. Thomas replies, it cannot. In fact, knowledge of the Trinity is necessary, St. Thomas holds, for two purposes. We need it, we need knowledge of the Trinity, quoting St. Thomas, in order to think rightly about the creation of things, because the creation of things takes place in God's eternal word and through God's personal love, that is, through the Holy Spirit. So we need to know the Trinity in order to think in a fully adequate way about the creation of the world. Even more, we need to know of the Trinity, St. Thomas argues in this same passage of question 32. We need to know the Trinity in order to think rightly about 
quoting St. Thomas, the salvation of the human race, which is accomplished by the gift of the incarnate Son and of the Holy Spirit. We need to know the Trinity, St. Thomas is here teaching, in order rightly to understand both the coming forth of creatures from God and the return of creatures, especially the rational creature, to God. And that is the entire content of the Catholic faith. That is the entire content also, naturally, of the Summa Theologia. The coming forth of creatures from God and the return of creatures to God. Therefore, there is no topic in the whole of Catholic teaching for St. Thomas, which may be isolated from the Trinity or from which the Trinity may be isolated. We need to understand the Trinity to understand any aspect of Catholic teaching. St. Thomas is, in fact, extremely clear about that. That's the general point. St. Thomas also affirms an intimate link of the Trinity to the cross, the particular question that especially concerns so much contemporary Catholic theology. St. Thomas affirms that there is an intimate connection here. Quoting St. Thomas, the Christian faith consists primarily in the confession of the Holy Trinity and faith glories especially in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So at the heart of the Christian faith for St. Thomas is the Trinity and the cross. Confessing the Trinity, Christians glory above all in the cross, glorifying the cross, we confess the divine Trinity. Confessing the Trinity and glorying in the cross are it seems for St. Thomas, two sides of a coin. One cannot do either thing, confess the Trinity or glorify the cross without doing the other. Properly understood for St. Thomas, Trinity and cross exhibit a profoundly intimate connection. The question is what makes for a proper understanding of Trinity and of cross, and therefore, a really profound question is, how are Trinity and cross, in fact, connected? Over a century ago, the English Congregationalist theologian, P.T. Forsyth, proposed a distinctive and novel way of locating the basic link between Trinity and cross. That's the question we want to focus on. What is the nature of this link? Forsyth says the following. There was a Calvary above, which was the mother of it all. The cross which Jesus bore for us in time can only be truly effective for our salvation if it was already present and real somehow, at the heart of God from all eternity. According to this view, Forsyth and many others suggest, the entire saving kenosis of the Son of God, which is so clearly central to the New Testament, the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians, most obviously, the entire saving kenosis of the Son of God must in some way pre-exist its enactment or manifestation in time. The obedience the only Son of God exhibits in time, his suffering, abandonment, and descent into hell for him. None of these can simply be actions, according to this view. None of these can simply be actions the triune God has freely decided to undertake in time. There must, on the contrary, be obedience, suffering, and abandonment, crucifixion, and even death within the most interior life of the Trinity, in the very processions and relations that eternally constitute and distinguish the three divine persons. 
If this is not the case, these theologians argue, the triune God himself would not be truly involved in the self-emptying in which our salvation consists, let alone committed to it with his whole being. Christ's kenosis would be reduced, according to this understanding, to mere appearance beyond which lay an unknown and not a saving God. Over the last century, this intuition that our whole salvation depends on a Calvary above, a Calvary, a cross at the heart of God's Trinitarian life, has taken a deep hold on Catholic, Protestant, and Eastern Orthodox theology alike. Regardless of whether theologians knew anything of Forsyth or used his precise language, this intuition of a Calvary above is clearly and influentially evident, for example, in the Catholic theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, the Protestant theologian Karl Barth, and the Eastern Orthodox theologian Sergei Bulgakov. I want to try to understand this intuition a little more clearly, this intuition that there must be a cross above, a cross in God's Trinitarian life. The intuition seems to be this. The obedience, the suffering, the abandonment, and the descent of, the descent of Jesus into hell cannot belong to God simply because he has decided to become incarnate in the person of the Son. On this view, they must belong to God as God and not to God simply as incarnate or as man. In Aquinas' terms, obedience, suffering, and the like must belong to God Secundum quod Deus in Aquinas' Latin, with respect to his divinity or insofar as he is God, and not only secundum quod homo on account of or with respect to his being man. On this view, suffering and abandonment and descent of the person of the Son must be constitutive of his being as God and not only of his contingent temporal action. For this modern view, the eternal son does not obey and suffer on Calvary because he has freely become incarnate, as patristic and medieval theology, including Aquinas, consistently held. Rather, the eternal son becomes incarnate in order to manifest and make present in the world the obedience, suffering, and abandonment he has already undergone from all eternity. Furthermore, on this understanding of a Calvary above, since God is the Trinity, the one who displays himself in his temporal kenosis, in the kenosis of the Son, as three distinct persons who interact with one another, there must be a kenosis which belongs to each of the three persons and not only to the son. Kenosis must be constitutive of each of the three persons as divine persons. It cannot merely belong as a matter of divine freedom and contingently to one of the three because God has freely decided to become incarnate. Only in this way, only if there is an eternal kenosis of all the three divine persons, can we take in sufficient earnest God's radical saving identification in Christ with his humiliated and suffering creatures, according to this view. We must, in other words, uh, according to this view, hold to a kenosis of all three persons if we are to accept God's likeness to us in all things save sin, as the epistle to the Hebrews teaches. It is not hard to appreciate the motives 
of the many theologians who look to a Calvary above, a cross at the heart of God's own Trinitarian life. But this idea leads, I think, to very problematic and curious results. Pontorius von Balthasar, for example, locates the kenosis above, the kenosis which must belong to both the Father and the Son, in the very generation of the Son by the Father, the begetting of the Son by the Father. The Son's kenosis above, according to Balthasar, is to consent to his own eternal generation, whereby the Son allows himself to be God from God, a person who possesses the divine nature as receiver and not as giver. In Balthazar's own words, the Son, quoting Balthazar, the Son is already a co-worker in the generation in that he allows himself to be generated and holds himself ready to be generated. Consequently, we can already see within the Trinity the source from which will issue the obedience of the incarnate Son to the Father. There's an obedience within the Trinity, not simply an obedience of the incarnate Son. The corresponding kenosis of the Father for Balthazar consists in stripping or divesting himself of the divine nature of all that he is and has in order to hand it over to another, to make it another's own. Quoting Balthazar again, with Bogaka, one can designate the self-utterance of the Father in the generation of the Son as a first, all-embracing, inner divine kenosis. Because in this generation, the father divests himself without remainder of his divinity in order to give it over to the son as the son's own. This twofold inner Trinitarian kenosis of the son and of the father grounds in turn for Balthazar, the temporal kenosis of Bethlehem, Calvary, and Holy Saturday. I think there's, there are deep problems with this view that Balthazar articulates. How can the son ascent to his own generation? Not after the fact, which obviously poses no problem, but by an act which met, must take place in order for his own generation to occur. The Son has his total being, after all, his being as God and as Son, just to the extent that he is the product or term of the Father's act of generation. St. Thomas insists on this. It's a commonsensical thought uh, that we have to be in order to act. Uh, in uh, he insists on this in a passage from question 27 that uh, I also uh, sent to Carl to be circulated. This act of generation, the act of the Father, by which the Father eternally, not in time, but eternally brings forth the Son, this act of generation must take place in order for the Son to assent to it. The act by which he has his own being cannot take place because he assents to it. How, furthermore, can the son assent to his own generation in such a way that this ascent is a canonic act? As Balthazar sees it, kenosis happens when a person, including a divine person, divests himself of or gives up what he already possesses or has the right to possess. But the eternal son cannot be thought of as possessing anything, let alone of giving it up, prior to his generation, which is to say prior to his existence. The son exists on account of the father's act of generating and on account of that act alone. He does not exist on account of any act he undertakes. Nothing, 
medieval theology consistently held can be the cause of its own existence. Still less does he exist by the act of renouncing a right to be the divine person who generates rather than the divine person who is generated. The son cannot have his existence as Balthazar remarkably supposes in his own act of renouncing a right to be the father. In response, <clears throat> in response to this objection, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, it will not help to point out as Balthazar and others do that all this takes place the generation, the kenosis, and so forth that Balthazar is speaking of, that all this takes place in God's eternity where temporal categories do not apply and the son's consent occurs in eternal simultaneity with the father's generation of him. You still have to be in order to act. Being is prior to acting essay to operare, as St. Thomas and other medievals put it. Or as he also says, St. Thomas also says, the first act, the very act of existing, is prior to the second act, the work or the action of what already exists. To use a standard example that was used by the church fathers and the medievals, the son's existence as a star is prior in the order of nature to the light that shines from the sun, since the being of the light depends on the being of the sun and not the other way around. But the sun and its light are temporally coincident. They are coincident in time. One is never present without the other. In just this way, being is prior to acting in the order of nature and not only in the order of time. The son's eternal act of consent to his generation, presuming he makes such an act, depends in the order of nature on the father's eternal act of generating and not the other way around. In a similar way, and more briefly, it seems impossible for the father's generation of the son, I've spoken of the son's being generated, it seems impossible for the father's generation of the son to be an act of self-emptying, an act of kenosis. The reason for this is that it is not clear how a person, a divine or a created person, who has divested himself of or lost his essence, can still be a person at all, and thereby be capable of action of any sort. If the father has to give up his divine essence in order to impart it to the son, if he divests himself of it, then he ceases to be God in the very act of generating the son. <clears throat> Without the divine essence, a person is not God. The son would no longer be God from God, as the creed teaches us, but God from what, as it were, used to be God. The Son can only be God from God if the Father generates him by possessing the divine nature, in virtue of possessing it, and not instead of possessing the divine nature himself. The generation of the Son cannot, it seems, be in any way a canonic act, an act of self-emptying. There is much more that could be said about this. I have introduced the notion of inner divine kenosis and raised critical questions about it, not in order to single out Balthazar for criticism. Many other theologians say similar things. But to make what seems to me a more basic point about the axiom that is affirmed by Thomas as we have already seen and celebrated by a lot of contemporary theology, namely that the Trinity ought to shape visibly the whole of faith and theology and that, that it not be isolated. It seems to me that contemporary theology of the sort I've been describing has been strikingly negligent of its own axiom. 
rather than having our faith in an understanding of the Trinity shape what we say, for example, about the cross, the pattern has been just the opposite. Intuitions and assumptions about what happens on the cross, or more broadly about what happens in the kenosis of the Son of God, have been freely employed to shape our understanding of the Trinity in decisive ways. Trinitarian theology has often become the effort to find counterparts in God, primordial doubles, as it were, doppelganger in German, primordial doubles for what we see happening in the saving economy, the Calvary above that somehow has to match the Calvary below. This impulse is usually fortified by adherence to another axiom, that of the identity of the economic and the imminent trinity, but that is a matter for another discussion. In the process of trying to find eternal counterparts for the temporal and economic actions and events in the trinity itself, this process, far from shaping what we say, in this process, I'm sorry, far from shaping what we say about all other doctrines, the Trinity has become the most plastic of all doctrines, the one most readily shaped by what we believe about other matters. The lesson here, I think, the basic lesson, is that our understanding of the Trinity cannot correctly shape the way we think about the rest of Christian teaching, as medievals and moderns agree that it should, unless we have a sound understanding of the Trinity to begin with. And this suggests that a sound understanding of the Trinity cannot, as a quite basic principle, simply replicate or reproduce at the level of eternity, what we already believe about kenosis, the cross, or any other event of salvation history. What we need, in other words, is an account of the three divine persons, of their distinctions from each other and their unity as the one God, which does not simply reproduce what we believe about the history of salvation. Only this sort of account, the sort of account that St. Thomas offers, has sufficient independence and sufficient priority actually to shape what we think about these other matters. We need, to put the point in St. Thomas's terms, a rigorous theology of processions, relations, and persons in God clearly distinguished from a theology of the redemptive missions of the Son and the Spirit. We need, if the Trinity is truly to shape our faith and life, a bold speculative theology of the Trinity, which is precisely not a bold speculative theology of kenosis or the cross. Despite all the Trinitarian writing of recent generations, there has been remarkably little of this, of this bold speculative theology. But it is the needed medieval answer to a modern question, which is how the doctrine of the Trinity can truly shape what we believe and think about God and his work.